You're listening to episode 40 of the Secret Origins Podcast, with stories about Gorilla City, Kong Gorilla, and Detective Chimp. Hey, hey, don't you skip this podcast. Take your finger away from the skip button. Slowly, slowly. There. This is happening, okay? Just deal with it. Let the podcast play. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is it, folks. This is the episode you've all been waiting for. Not Batman, not the Legion, not the new Teen Titans. Instead, we're talking all apes all the time to honor the milestone 40th issue of Secret Origins. The first Simeon story on the docket is one of my favorite Silver Age concepts from the pages of The Flash, Gorilla City. And my first guest is making his welcome return to Secret Origins. He is one of the hosts of First Strike, The Invasion podcast, and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast. Please welcome Bass back to the show. How are you, buddy? I'm doing very well. Now, last time you were here, we talked about Wally West, who is back in the DC Universe, by the way, starting in DC Universe Rebirth and continuing in the New Titans series. I'm pretty sure we did that by reviewing his origin. So, <laughs> Well, I don't know, because I specifically stated that we should just say goodbye to Wally because he's gone forever. It was like reverse psychology, though. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's probably well, how it works. We had to convince DC that we didn't really need him back, and that was all they needed to change their minds. So to everyone else who is a fan of Wally West, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, we did that. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that we talked about last time was, of course, my canned intro, and this is the segue to that. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series, three of which star super apes, and they are all lumped together in this issue. And as difficult as it may be to believe... Mine is not the first podcast to cover this issue of Secret Origins. Back in May of 2015, Tom Panarese covered this book on Pop Culture Affidavit. You can find it on the episode titled 80 Years of DC Comics Number 5, Goin' Ape. It's a fun episode, and Tom is a friend of the show, and I'm not just saying that because he'll be on next week's episode. But anyway, Bass, I know our listeners are wondering the same question. Why was Titano, the super chimp with kryptonite vision, left off of this issue? It's a great question. I'm asking myself that right now. It's like my favorite Superman villain. <laughs> right behind the toy man. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. Very like neck and neck. It's one and one A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what is your experience with Gorilla City and or Gorilla Grodd? Well, being a Flash guy, I, I know Gorilla Grodd from uh, a ways back. I do remember reading about Gorilla City in old comic books, uh, the Barry Allen comic books. We kind of revisit Gorilla City in, uh, I believe it's Flash 195 or something like that, written by uh, Jeff Johns, where they recreate, uh, reinvent Zoom out of Hunter's Almond, where Grodd breaks his back and everything. And we go back to Gorilla City to find another Gorilla City. That was kind of cool, but uh, I remember well the old Gorilla City, and me too. That's that that concept is is just wonderful to have super intelligent apes, you know, <laughs> separated from the rest of humanity because you know humans are savage and untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. There's certainly lots of metaphorical and literary devices going on with these stories of the super intelligent gorillas who choose to remain isolated from society, who choose to remain hidden. I discovered them really when I was going back and reading the Showcase Presents uh, the Flash stories, and it was a pretty early introduction. I mean, they came in pretty early on with Grodd and Solovar, and Grodd is just one of my favorite... He's not only one of my favorite Flash villains, he's one of my favorite DC villains. You've got a giant evil gorilla with mind control and powers that hits me right in all of my fan buttons. <laughs> I just I love that concept. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's uh, like it's kind of the reverse. And maybe that's why I like him so much. He's kind of like the reverse Red Tornado. Hmm. You know, like Red Tornado is a machine with feelings and this is a, a beast with greater intelligence. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought about that way. Yeah. I think I think that's why I like them so much. Because, you know, Red Tornado, meh, yeah, whatever. There are people who love Red Tornado. I am not one of those people. <laughs> exactly. None of them are my friends. <laughs> that's, what... <laughs> that's actually the distinction that you make. <laughs> yeah. So. Were you ever a fan of, like, the, the Planet of the Apes movies? Like, the ideas of the super apes? Did that ever, like, strike? Was that part of your fandom? Uh, yeah, I was kind of. I was always a big sci-fi fan, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, Planet of the Apes was right up in there. I mean, I, I remember watching Planet of the Apes with my uncle on my old grandma's TV, and uh, wondering how how this was possible to have super intelligent apes. And later on, studied a bit in biology, understanding that, you know, humans are great apes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're not so distant, us and them. And it's just a little bit of uh, it's probably one of the greatest science fiction tropes, in my opinion, the super smart gorilla or the super smart chimp. It's, yeah. it's great. It's certainly a well that some comic books kept going back to. It was oh, well, evidenced yeah. by this issue. There's at least three. And we mentioned that Titano isn't even in this one. But uh, was Titano super intelligent, though? Uh, I, I think he's he's more like a destructive, yeah. big hunk. Of, I, don't, I don't think he's smart. He's just chaotic. But he, kryptonite vision. He, he shoots kryptonite lasers. I know. I know. It's great. I mean, if un, unless you're Superman, which is awful then. How many times are we going to see Superman fight other Kryptonians in the movies before <laughs> we get him to fight a giant gorilla? That's what we want, though. That's what we want. <laughs> Getting into the publication history, yeah. for Gorilla City is sort of wrapped up with the history of its two most famous citizens, which are Grodd and Solovar. They all debuted in The Flash issue 106 in 1959. 
Either the concept of good and evil superintelligent gorillas was popular with the fans, or the creative team of John Broom, Carmine Infantino, and Julie Schwartz just really liked it, because Grodd came back in issues 107 and 108, and then periodically throughout the 60s in Flash 115, 127, 155, 172, and 209. In the 1970s, Grodd became more of a utility villain, popping up in issues of Action Comics, Super Team Family, and DC Superstars. In fact, Grodd's secret origin was told in DC Superstars issue 14. But perhaps his biggest deal in the 70s was his tenure in Secret Society of Supervillains, which is another just fabulous name, much like Gorilla City. Oh, yeah. In the 1980s, Grodd went back to battling the Scarlet Speedster, appearing in half a dozen more issues of The Flash, while Solovar, meanwhile, took on a larger role in the first couple issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. After the crisis, Grodd popped up in issues 45 through 47 of the Mesner Loeb's run on Flash, and Mark Wade used him again during a crossover with Green Lantern in 1992. Jeff Johns used Grodd several times during his run with the Wally West Flash, and Francis Manipool and Brian Buccioletto also used Grodd prominently in the New 52 Flash. Gorilla Grodd has also appeared outside of comics in both Challenge of the Super Friends and Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Most recently, he has even appeared in live action on the CW Flash television series. Now, I haven't seen all of Season 2 of Flash, so I don't know how much they've done with Gorilla City, but I do know that the concept was at least teased. Anything else? Any appearances that you know I forgot? Well, just this week in video games, in uh, the Injustice uh, sequel, Gorilla Grodd will be one of the playable characters. That's right. I just saw that uh, that preview, the yeah. trailer for the uh, gameplay trailer. And he looks vicious. He does. He looks really cool. And spoiler for for Rob Kelly, you get to see Aquaman like basically killing Grodd with a <laughs> megalodon. Just this giant sea beast comes out of the water and kills him. But oh yeah, but oh no, yeah, it's he, it's great footage. I can't wait to see that video game. Yeah, no, you're right. I completely forgot about that. That just came out. But yeah, he looks good in that trailer. So, all right, listeners, we are going to take a short promotional break, and we will be back in a minute with the secret origin of Gorilla City. Don't go away. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! You're next! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Tanigarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Here we come. Walking down the street, we get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around, but we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We go where we want to, do what we like to do. 
We don't have time to get restless There's always something new Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing To put anybody down We're just trying to be friendly Come and watch us sing and play We're the young generation And we've got something to say Secret Origins, issue 40, is cover dated May 1989, but the real on-sale date was March 21st of that year, so says Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover, which has a lot going on that I'll explain, was drawn by Bill Ray. It has a red banner running down the left-hand side of the cover listing the three ape-related stories and their creative teams. Above the Secret Origins title is the bold phrase, Because I Demanded It, indicating that this entire absurd endeavor was a passion project of editor Mark Wade's. Bill Ray's cover art shows Gorilla Grodd, Congorilla riding a motorcycle, and Detective Chimp crying, with a sort of primordial jungle background full of dinosaurs and purple clouds. At the bottom is another text box asking, Why is this chimp crying? See the letters page for details. So before reading those details, uh, what do you think of this cover? Actually, this is a pretty cool cover. This is a pretty cool cover. The three apes are very distinct. We recognize Grodd off the bat, Detective Chimp also. I didn't know Congorilla that much. I didn't know he was like paler and everything. But, you know, he's riding motorcycles, so that's Congorilla for sure. In my opinion, it's a, it's a very cool cover. Yeah, it's fun. It's kind of silly. And I think that is the whole point. Going to that bottom text caption, why is the chimp crying? See the letters page. Mark Wade does take a couple paragraphs to explain this in the back matter during the letters column. He has a Secrets Behind the Goofy Cover essay. I'll just be reading this directly from his words. These things don't just happen by accident, you know? Back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, in the days when we really thought we had the vaguest idea what the hell would sell a comic book, other than Wolverine, there were unwritten laws about what to put on a cover. Gorillas, for example. We must have published 200 covers featuring gorillas, probably more. In the 1970s, we even published three comics called Superheroes Battle Super Gorillas, two issues of DC Special, and one one-shot really called Superheroes Battle Super Gorillas. What else? Well, dinosaurs were popular and sold covers. We did seven years of Dinosaur Island, the war that time forgot in Star-Spangled War Stories, and we must have had a good reason. Motorcycles sold, and fires, fires also sold, which is why the first issue of Showcase, DC's 1950s and 60s anthology comic, featured Fireman Pharaoh. Purple covers did well, as did covers with questions to the reader on them. Who built a giant statue of Batman overnight, and why? LL, why do these initials spell death for the Man of Steel? And last but not least, then-publisher Carmine Infantino swore up and down that if you showed your hero crying, well, that made a cover. So, when you make a departure so big as to fill an entire issue of Secret Origins with gorillas in lieu of superheroes, you load the odds as best you can. It took a team of artists weeks of dedicated labor to craft this puppy, after which cover artist Bill Ray ended up marching to the beat of his own drummer and turning in the marvelous final draft based on his own sketch. All the more amazing considering that I'm sure Bill to this day doesn't get the joke. And that's that. 
Remember, you won't be seeing a cover quite like this ever again, unless I can dredge up three more gorillas to put in this book next year. So, just some nice little inside thought that sort of explains the crying detective chimp, Kangorilla on a motorcycle, the purple clouds, the dinosaurs. I mean, they, they put a lot of thought into making yeah. this such an absurd but striking cover. I do understand why I think it's so cool now, because, you know, I've been digging dinosaurs since uh, I was young, so dinosaurs rule. <laughs> All right, are you ready to tell us the secret origin of Gorilla City? Of course. Birds fly off, scared by something incredible. A spaceship crashes in the jungle. It's met by one of the most curious species on Earth, the gorilla. The bravest gorilla comes forward and opens the small craft and finds a small baby-like creature. The creature is gently plucked from the vessel and examined. Also finding the ship is a large ball-like crystal, which is examined and promptly discarded. The unimportant crystal sizzles and releases a two-way ray and then scares off the humble gorillas. We now move on to London, England, 1873. A man strapped to a chair in a straitjacket is identified as Sir Albert Wesley, an explorer, being questioned by a reporter. He recalls he and his partner Hughes looking for fame and fortune in the jungle. As their guides abandon them, they discover Gorilla City. It is fantastic, futuristic, a marvel of engineering, architecture, and technology. The two humans are quickly discovered and taken to a temple prison where they meet the prisoner god of Gorilla City, the little baby-like alien from the crashed ship. He explains how he was rescued, taken prisoner 11 years ago, and he started the evolution of the gorillas. The gorillas destroyed his ship, marooning him on Earth for infinity. He then explains how the crystal ejected a concentrated enhancement evolution beam. One side of the beam hit Solovar, king of the gorilla city, and the other one hit someone else. We'll soon learn that that gorilla was Gorilla Grodd. They both are hyper-evolutionated. I don't know if that's a word. I'll just use it anyway. <laughs> the alien is afraid for his life. He knows that Grodd wants to kill him. Our two explorers meet Solvar, who makes a grand and lasting impression. They are escorted to their quarters for the night. They are then summoned by the boy-baby-god prisoner for a late-night escape. But Grodd takes over the feeble mind of Hughes, and he kills the small alien god-child wizard, and then <laughs> Sir Wesley escapes while leaving the poor Hughes to the mercy of the enraged gorillas. As the story ends, we see Solovar activating the aura screen to protect the gorillas from the savage, deceitful humans. The aura screen hides Gorilla City and keeps the gorillas safe from evil. And this wonderful comic was uh, written by Kerry Bates and Greg Wiseman. The penciler is Carmen Infantino, the inker Mike DiCarlo. Very good. Um, one of my first notes on this was, even though Mark Wade edited this issue... He would later take a hand in sort of retconning this story. Yeah. Uh, because early on in his run of Flash, there's a four-part crossover between Green Lantern issues 30 and 31, when Gerard Jones was writing the book, and Flash issues 69 and 70, where there's a team-up of the Green Lantern villain Hector Hammond 
and Grodd. And they kind of established that both of their super intelligent powers came from the same meteorite. Or there was something like a meteorite crashing to Earth and it broke up into three parts. One landed in California, where Hector Hammond eventually discovered it. One landed in the jungle, where the gorillas found it. And then a third piece landed elsewhere, and, and Hammond and Grodd were trying to find that. So it's interesting that he's already deviating from this story with the, the wrecked spaceship. Yeah, so so early after the origins or the secret origins of Gorilla City. Yeah. It's one of those things, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think the original or the origins as told in uh, Secret Origins is is pretty good. I mean, we, we don't really need to, you know, go further than that. Maybe they needed to give a better origin for Hector Ammon. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. What did you think of this story overall? I thought it was great. I, I thought it was uh, well done, you know, with the uh, little intro there. It's very, uh, it's very cinematic. You know, we have this kind of intro where we see gorillas. There's no dialogue, nothing like that. It's just the discovery. And then we move to, you know, the plot where we learn who discovered it, you know, who discovered Gorilla City. And then we come back to that origin story with that little that little alien baby thing, <laughs> which is kind of weird. And I like the way he always talks in these weird paradoxes. Yeah. Like he's a prisoner god. He's, uh, you know, uh, he had an accident arrival. Right. Uh, you know, I, I kind of dig that. And it's also portrayed in how he looks. You know, he's like this uh, wise old thing, but he looks like a baby. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I kind of dug that. I thought it was a great origin story. Yeah, I, I too. I really like that character. Just, yeah, you describe it. It looks like a toddler, like an infant or whatever. There's yeah. even There's even kind of a parallel to Superman, who we see crash land in a spaceship. And Well, exactly. But exactly. yeah, he's this sort of wizened alien who, you're right, he speaks like all of the nouns that he uses are like one word slash another word that kind of suggests that in his alien language, he's using the same word, but for English, it can be translated different ways and it kind of suggests two different things. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it kind of gives a bit more depth mm -hmm. to how that character interacts. Right. And just the fact that, like, the gorillas find him, they take him, they worship him like a god. He sort of bestows this intelligence to them, and, and he's the father of their entire society and their civilization. But at the same time, they're fearful that he'll leave, so the gorillas destroy his ship. Yeah. They, they're afraid that their god will abandon them, if given the chance. Exactly, so. and they create this beautiful temple, mm -hmm. which is also a prison, Yeah, you know. So, yeah, there's a bit of a paradox in there. And, I mean, there's a paradox in the super intelligent gorilla also, you know. So, it, it, it's it's I think it's all nicely put together. Yeah. I'm kind of sad that the little alien just gets shot. You know, yeah. that's, how, that's how he dies. It's so anticlimactic. He just gets shot. Mm-hmm. The whole rescuing this thing and trying to make their escape and our narrator explains like just that his partner is just taken over by Grodd, who they don't yeah. even know. They never identify within this because of the circumstances. The prisoner god didn't know who was beamed by this light that like gave intelligence, the, the sort of warped persona to the other Grodd. So it's just like this sleeper threat danger within their yeah. civilization. Exactly. We don't know who Grodd is at this point, and th that little alien doesn't know either, but he does know that he's powerful enough to kind of subdue his mental abilities and, you know, and he takes control of Hughes. 
Um, I called him feeble-minded, but, you know, it's just because he has a beard. And, uh, <laughs> you know, well, he looks like the guy who's going to turn evil for some odd reason in the comics. <laughs> but I also like how the panels, you know, there's like this 2-4 page there where two yep. panels are side to side and it, they're four down. And you see things happening two places at the same time. And you see this monkey, this gorilla, who we know is Grodd, right. uh, just controlling Hughes at a distance. And he seems to be smiling. Mm-hmm. So he's enjoying this assassination. He's planning this and he wants he wants to take control. And we see how in the, his expression, how evil Grodd is. Right. We also see that by the end of the story, once Solovar says, you know, we're putting up this force field so people won't be able to see our city, we're going to go back into hiding, this is for our protection, Gorilla City will be fine forever, and we just kind of get this shot of all of the gorillas watching, and in their midst is just this one gorilla that we know is Grodd that's just watching him, this is all part of his plan. Exactly, kind of uh, still with this, he has this Mm -hmm. smirk, he's smiling a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. A little bit more than the other gorillas, you know. He's He looks evil-er. Yeah. Did the timeline of this story surprise you at all? Actually, yeah. Surprised me a lot. I Going back to the 1800s, I thought, wow, this is going far. Because Solovar eventually gets assassinated. And that seems to happen like in the 2000s, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a, quite a bit away. So time frame wise i don't know if uh, gorilla city also slows time or something but you know it's <laughs> they're getting kind of old if it was that far back that yeah that was one of my first questions was do they i mean this implies they must age differently i mean even if you take that the characters were introduced in 1959 even if, if we even said just like you know that was when that story took place even though with comics you know you always need that sort of sliding timeline of events sir wesley he's telling his story in 1873 and when he confronts the prisoner god he makes a mention that he's been there for 11 years or 11 revolutions so say that his ship crashed in 1862 that's almost 100 years and part of it surprised me because it's like okay i guess the gorillas live longer than we expected we anticipated but also the gorilla city like this whole dynamic, all these characters, they're so entrenched in the Flash and his world. We never get any whisper of that. I mean, this is a hundred years before Flash is born. This is not a Flash story. This could be anything. Like it's, it reads, it very much feels sort of like an old, kind of like um, a Victorian era adventure story, like something that would be written by a Jules Verne or a Charles Dickens. You've yeah. got these two, you know, British you know, safari guys going on an adventure in the jungle, you know, trying to, you know, discover the secrets of Africa. They find this tribe of super intelligent gorillas. They're captured. There's this weird science fiction element with this alien. One of the guys that is brainwashed and kills their prisoner god, and the rest of the gorillas just savagely beat him to death while the one survivor, our narrator, just runs off and he's thrown into an insane asylum. He's institutionalized because yeah. <laughs> nobody will believe his story. Nobody would, could believe that for another hundred years. So there's it, this really tragic element to the story. Absolutely. And it really uh, mirrors what authors like uh, uh, Haggard 
did with uh, King Solomon's Mines. Yeah. You know, it has that Alan Quartermain type feel to uh-huh. it. So, yeah, and that's right in that time, right? In that Victorian type England exploring the Congo and with a supernatural element. And here it's an alien, you know. So I guess the Victorians just went all crystal skull on us and <laughs> just went aliens. But I mean, it, it does have that feel. It's not a it's not a flash story by all means. It's it's really a, an old Victorian type story. Yeah. What did you think of the art in this story? Because this was, as you mentioned, this was penciled by Carmine Infantino, who created Grodd and Gorilla City and the Barry Allen Flash. But of course, Carmine Infantino, this was definitely toward the end of his career. I think Mike DiCarlo was pretty heavy on the inks in order to make this. But you <laughs> Yeah, can, I think so. You can definitely recognize Grodd because... Infantino drew gorillas in a way that other people don't. They're not quite on model. There's this expressiveness and this cartoonishness about their faces. Even when we're supposed to believe that Grodd is evil, he's got kind of a... I don't know, there's just something about his face. Yeah, he he looks like a mask version of, you know, like... Yes, it it doesn't look like a gorilla. It looks like a gorilla mask. It does. It's like almost like flattened like that. It's it's almost too human for that. Like a contemporary artist would not draw him like that. He would draw a savage, kind of feral, angry-looking gorilla. Yeah, Um, yeah, like we we would see in, uh, you know, the later years of Grodd, you know, even... uh, But right now, it's kind of difficult to know which kind of gorilla this is. I mean, is it... (laughs) a mountain gorilla is it a jungle is it a silverback type gorilla um i don't think we really cared back then which which type of gorilla it was and and and, i mean they didn't have google to google image you know a bunch of gorillas and and get to you know they probably just drew it by you know memory or something and that's probably why he was referred to for so long as gorilla grod not just grod so you definitely exactly Uh, although the gorillas do look better in this version of his gorilla drawings than in the earlier versions of gorilla grod yeah, I mean, Grodd had way back when, I mean, in issue 106, I mean, he was like four feet tall. He was <laughs> small and just, you know, I don't know. He was just walking like a guy. He was just like, <laughs> it was kind of kind of goofy. And, and, and we kind of keep that, that goofy element in there. But I mean, it's fine. It's comic book gorillas. But other than that, I mean, for for Infantino at the tail end of his career, I think the art is pretty solid, and Mike DiCarlo can be—he can sometimes spoil artists with his with his uh, inks. I, I've seen him ink some books that I think he he went overboard and made it too dark or just kind of distorted the image, but I don't think that's the case in this one. The art—it's not stellar, but I can't really find a lot of instances where it looks bad or where it turns me off. Yeah, I think uh, I think the inking is uh, is actually very nice when we go back to Victorian England, you know, and, and that's where the inks kind of shine through as adding that drama and adding that depth. But uh, you know, Gorilla City seems like a, a, a sunny place. Yeah. So y- you can't really go too heavy on the inking, but he does go kind of crazy on some of the panels where we see like the shirts. Some twists in the shirts are kind of weird, and you know that's because of the ink, you know. Right, right. So, but you know, it, other than that, it's yeah, I'm, I'm agree. I agree with you. It's 
it's pretty solid. It's not it's not stellar. I mean, a lot of the characters are kind of flat and, you know, they, they kind of warp a little bit. But, you know, it's it's still pretty good. Overall, I mean, this story surprised me in two ways. Uh, one, just because it was not a story that I was expecting. I really thought we would tie this into The Flash or be more of a a kind of recap of Grodd's first appearance. Uh, and that's certainly not what this is. Like we said, this is a Victorian-style safari adventure kind of horror story uh, yeah. with this tragic element to it. But it was also really fun for being such a different story. It kind of subverted my expectations. Uh, I really dug it. And I, this is, it's just, I mean, it, it's a world that I love. And, and thinking, and you mentioned again, like the paradox nature of the super intelligent gorilla where you have this, this animal that we associate with savageness and, and beastie, like, I don't want to say bestiality because that has a different connotation. <laughs> yeah, that's not the good word. <laughs> but, but the savage kind of beast nature of gorillas. Yeah. And they're meant to be more civilized than humanity in some senses in these stories. Yeah, I, I like that. And and I even just kind of – my brain just kind of went here. Like one of my favorite X-Men characters has always been the Beast who kind of embodies this duality. You know, exactly. I liked him because he looked like a big cat or a big gorilla. He had this feral body, but he was the most articulate, the most erudite, the most intelligent, and you know didn't want to resort to violence. He wanted the scientific approach to any given crisis. Yeah, I think I think when uh, when you give intelligence to a, a strong, massive beast, I think here it's gonna be uh, thinking about his reality, what it is, you know, if it's a big hulking beast, uh, I think peace would be something he would reason to, you know, just because he understands that he doesn't have to demonstrate that strength just because he embodies it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that's why I always thought that was why Beast was always looking for peace instead of destruction or fighting. And that would be also, I'm guessing, maybe the... Uh, uh, the reasoning behind Gorilla City being a very peaceful place. They don't have to prove they're stronger because we know they're strong. Right. Right. So they don't have that need for proving themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really like that duality. And, and on the other hand, the evil side of that is Grodd, mm -hmm. which is basically power corrupted. Yeah. You know, strength and, and mental power corrupted because of that strength and power. Right. The intelligence only serves to kind of bolster his savagery, his hunger, and his the sort of alpha male sense of dominance that you associate with these animals. Yeah, and exactly. And he's going to bang his chest and prove that he is the biggest and the strongest. And he'll rip your head off and eat your brains if he has to do that. Exactly. And, that's, and he's willing to do that any time of the day because that's what he feels he needs to do to be the strongest. I don't think they'll do it, but I really hope Grodd and the gorillas are the villains of the Flash movie. I know they have done some with Grodd in the Flash TV series, but just the budget and the scale and the practical effects, they're never going to do it as well on TV as they could do it in a movie. And I've also just... They've done two years of reverse speedsters on that show. I yeah. don't want to see Barry fighting the reverse Flash or Zoom or another version of that in the movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, not that I'm over speedsters, but it, it's always nice to see Flash having to be a bit more creative with his powers mm -hmm. 
you know, because he has to, you know, find a way to beat a big, powerful and smart and just powerful being like Grodd. I mean, you can't you can punch him a, a thousand times and he, he's just going to put a knee down. You know, he's going to take a knee, take a breath and come back. Yeah. So that's not how you're going to beat Grodd. You need to, to do something else. And and it's always nice to see super powerful characters like like the Flash or Superman when they need to do something else than just use their super strength or super speed. So I'm right there with you. I hope in the Flash movie that we, we see either some like Grodd or even some characters like uh, even the rogues, yeah. you know, full, full powered rogues with, uh, you know, the Mirror Master and, and you know, yeah. uh, Captain yeah. Cold. And, you know, mirror, the Mirror World thing, it's very movie right. uh, material. Agreed. Final thoughts on this story? Actually, I really loved how uh, I thought this was going to be a Flash story, but was really a Gorilla City story. And, you know, I kind of want to, to see more of that little alien or that little alien race, uh, <laughs> how they work together. Are they, I mean, they're mental type, you know, mm-hmm. aliens, but I, I'd like to see how they, they work and why he's there. I'd like to see more of, you know, Gorilla City, get to know, you know, a couple of gorillas. We, we know a couple. We, we know some of them. Right. But, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see that this is a standalone story. And it was very, very fun, actually. I really enjoyed that old Victorian King Solomon's Mines type feel to it. And it was fun. Agreed. Uh, for recommended readings, I mean, if you want the first appearances, you can get, well, if you want the old black and white versions, Showcase Presents The Flash Volume 1. Or there have been recolored versions in either The Flash Chronicles or The Flash Omnibus from the Silver Age. Uh, if you can, I don't think they've been collected yet. There was an announcement that they were finally going to start recollecting Mark Wade's run on The Flash, I think starting September or October. Hopefully they'll get to the point, but check out the Guerrilla Warfare uh, four-part crossover. It was in Green Lantern issues 30 and 31 and Flash 69 and 70. There are some of the new 52, uh, I think like the third volume, the third trade paperback, is all about the battle with Flash and the Rogues teaming up to fight the guerrilla invasion, which was pretty fun. Yeah, that was fun. I didn't really dig uh, Grodd in the new 52. I, I, I didn't like that he was connected to the Speed Force. <laughs> Spoiler warning. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I really dug that. I really enjoyed, you know, speed of mind versus speed of feet. Mm-hmm. You know, I always liked the speed versus, you know, brawn and strength type battles we had with uh, the Flash and Grodd. So I don't know about him being a speedster. Yeah. I'd also uh, recommend that creation of Zoom when uh, Jeff Johns was writing the Flash. And uh, it's chronicled in a trade, which is called Blitz. Yep. And uh, you can find that almost everywhere. You, you get to see some of the you got some of the other rogues, but you see the new Gorilla City. Was that when Scott Collins was drawing the book? Uh, actually, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was doing uh, great work. Yeah, he had uh, a really, really enjoyed cool, his work. I liked yeah. his take on Grodd. That was cool. And uh, the new Gorilla City with uh, Namdi, which is uh, the son of Solovar, who, yep. who had been killed. And they had a, like an interesting... Follow up to how Solovar was, or what Solovar was trying to do then. So that was kind of nice too. Well, Bass, thank you one more time for being on Secret Origins. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you and your shows? 
Uh, me and Ciscoid, we uh, we have this little podcast called First Strike the Invasion Podcast. We go over the entire Invasion crossover from 1989. I'm reading it for the first time. He's uh, rereading it for the first time. And uh, we discuss everything, every issue, every tie-in from the Invasion Crisis, which is a lot of fun. And if you want to uh, you want to hear four guys talk about romance comics, you can always uh, tend your ear towards the podcast you never knew you wanted to listen to, uh, which is uh, the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast. The, the, the title is too long and I'm French. I can't say this. Uh, the, <laughs> the Lonely Hearts uh, Romance Comic Podcast, which is a lot of fun. It's four guys talking about romance comics. Uh, we have, uh, I think, a particular view on romance comics. And we talk about romance comics, but also romance in comics. So give it a, a little listen there. I highly recommend both of them. They're both fun shows. Very different shows, very different tones and flavors, but they're both a lot of fun to listen to. So go out and check those out if you haven't already. Bass, thank you one more time for joining me. This was a lot of fun again. I, I love My pleasure. I'll be on anytime, Ryan. Anytime. Okay, Secret Admirers, we are going to take another promo break, and after that, Kyle Benning is going to help me tell the legend of Congorilla. Stick around. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Annuals, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. We're back for some more monkey business. Get it, monkey? Okay, we're talking about Congorilla, and my guest is the host of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed, which includes the brand new feature War is Hell, devoted to DC's war comics. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. Kyle Benning. How are you, buddy? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to add a war comics podcast to your catalog? Uh, I don't know. I had been kicking around for a while. A couple of years ago, I got the uh, DC Fireside book, the uh, best of DC war comics. And I actually think that was uh, Russell Burbage sent that to me and had pulled that out and was working back through it. And then I'd been reading uh, through my collected edition of uh, Joe Kubert Presents. And I was like, God, I should just do kind of a random assortment of war comics. There's just so much great material they have out there. And 
it's pretty cheap to get your hands on with all the showcases and stuff. So I should just start spotlighting random stories out of this. And it kind of creeped up on me. I wanted to do it for Memorial Day, get the first episode out. And then that didn't happen. But I was like, well, it's the 72nd anniversary of D-Day. So let's do it now. And cranked it out. And hopefully I can uh, get that out more regularly than all the other shows on the feed. Well, I, I really liked that first episode. I thought that was great. I want to hear a lot more from it. So cool. Um, on to the business of this issue. I offered you your choice of apes, and you chose Kongorilla. So why? What is it about this character? Honestly, uh, with my favorite character being Superman and his uh, you know, first appearance and flagship title obviously being Action Comics, I got to thinking uh, Congo Bill, and then later when he uh, took on the Kongorilla persona, having a 200-issue-plus continuous run probably makes him the most or the second most prominent character outside of Superman in that title. And so it's just kind of love him by association, I guess, with the Action Comics title and Superman. So that's uh, why I wanted to take him. I, I dig it. I completely understand. But as we mentioned beforehand, he's... Yeah, we'll get into this during the publication history. With all of his vast history in Action Comics, hardly any of his stories have ever been reprinted. Like I, I told you, I think I've only read two other comics with Kongorilla, which were when he was associated with the uh, the Forgotten Heroes in those Gil Kane issues. Yep, there were the two issues of Action Comics, and then the, around that same time, there were the two issues of DC Comics Presents. Right, uh, yeah. And then there was the... Uh, I think it was one of the Jim Starlin Specter issues of DC Comics Presents. The backup feature was the Whatever Happened to Kong Gorilla or mm-hmm. Congo Bill. Yeah, and I, I know nothing about this guy. Well, actually, I mean, I, I know a little bit just from the basic research, but I've read so comparatively little. It's weird for a character with this much history to not have you know a greater presence outside of those original books, but... Speaking of that publication history, the history of Kongorilla is really the history of two characters, or one character with two identities. Before the character was called Kongorilla, as Kyle mentioned, he was known as Congo Bill. He was a safari jungle adventure type character created way back in 1940, and shame on Roy Thomas for skipping this guy earlier in the series. Congo Bill's first appearance was in More Fun Comics issue 56 at the time when Justice Society stalwarts Dr. Fate and the Spectre were headlining the book. He was created by writer Whitney Ellsworth and artist George Papp and continued to appear in More Fun over the next year until issue 67. After that, he immediately jumped over to Action Comics, where he maintained a regular feature for nearly 20 years, starting with Action Comics 37 in 1941 and going all the way to issue 261, published in 1960. As if that wasn't enough evidence that the Safari character was big in the 1940s and 50s, Congo Bill was the subject of a 15-part live-action movie serial in 1948. He also had his own bi-monthly title published in 1954 and 55 that lasted seven issues. A year before his tenure in Action Comics ended, Congo Bill's status quo was shaken up when a tribal chief named Koalo gave Bill a ring that allowed him to transfer his psyche into the body of a golden gorilla, thus becoming Kongorilla. After Action Comics 261, Kongorilla jumped over to Adventure Comics 270 and stayed there for 13 issues. 
But by the early 60s, the character's popularity had faded, so much so that, with two exceptions, one of which being a whatever-happened-to story in DC Comics Presents 27, Congorilla didn't appear again until the mid-1980s, as part of the group known as the Forgotten Heroes in Action Comics 552 and 553, and DC Comics Presents 77 and 78. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Congo Bill slash Congorilla appeared in Swamp Thing Annual Number 3, where he dominated the pretty sweet cover. That story also saw Congo Bill electing to stay in his gorilla body permanently. After this issue of Secret Origins, Congorilla had a four-issue miniseries in 1992 written by Steve Englehart, and then a four-issue Vertigo series called Congo Bill in 1999. In 2009, James Robinson brought Congorilla into the Justice League, first in the Cry for Justice miniseries, and then in the pre-Flashpoint issues of Justice League of America. Anything else that you can remember that I'm missing? Uh, no, that's pretty comprehensive publishing history there. That uh, Swamp Thing Annual 3 was great. They had a lot of, uh, I believe that also had Buona Beast in them as well. Mm-hmm. I think pretty much all of the jungle-related characters. Animal Man, that was a really great story there. Well, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Congorilla? I am. We have the Legend of Congorilla, written by Tom Joyner, penciled by Frederick Butler, and inked by Keith Wilson. The story opens amidst a scene of carnage and death. A force has wiped out a group of armed militants, and we learn that the cause of the destruction is our narrator, Congo Bill, whose mind now inhabits the body of a fierce golden ape. How did this happen? Let's flash back a few days and see. It's June 1958 in Rwanda. There's a civil war going on, and we look in on Congo Bill, the great white hunter and a notorious adventurer and explorer of the African continent. As he watches with sadness, as his friend Kowalo, the local medicine man, dies from a gunshot wound, the latest casualty of this war. He is joined by a German doctor and Kowalo's nephew, Nasolo. Apparently, in the moments before he passes, Kowalo, who has no heirs, gives Bill a tribal relic, a mysterious ring. Bill gets the ballistics report on the bullet that killed Kualo, determining it was fired from an old Russian army rifle. The type that reports have indicated were being smuggled in from Zaire through Albert National Park. So Bill and Nosolo head that way to explore, and they come across a set of caves, which Bill is convinced is the only way to get to the group smuggling in the Russian rifles. He goes ahead scouting in the dark cave when he is betrayed by Nasolo, who throws in a grenade after Bill, which detonates and causes a uh, cave-in, I guess, <laughs> trapping Bill. But Bill survives, awaking a few hours later to complete darkness. He sits alone in the cave for days, delirious from his thirst and hunger. And finally, he rubs the ring and recalls Koalo's fabulous words. When Congo Bill needs gorilla strength, he rub ring. Then Congo Bill's mind enter gorilla body, while gorilla mind enter Congo Bill's body. This Koalo's gift to his best friend. The next thing Bill knows, he's free in the underbrush of the jungle again, but in the body of the golden gorilla. And he's closing in on the armed prey he was seeking before Nasolo's treachery. He sits tight and watches the group and realizes that Nasolo is the leader of this group of soldiers and the man behind the attack that killed his uncle and Bill's best friend, Kualo. He learns that Nasolo has set a trap for the remaining tribal chiefs, an ambush that will wipe them out so that his forces can take control of the area. Bill's heard enough, and so he lets loose the full fury of the Golden Gorilla. Fueled by his hatred as a man, Kongorilla mows through the armed militants like a hot knife through butter, even turning their own machine guns on them. And that is pretty much the greatest scene in the entire story. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the scene the story opens on. With the ambush thwarted, the great golden ape wanders off into the night, finds his way back to the cave where Bill's body lays trapped, frees the body, allowing his mind to then return to the body, and the great ape's mind likewise returning to the ape body. 
and then Congo Bill and the Golden Grill part ways. The end. All right. Thank you very much. Before I ask you for your uh, overall general impressions, the very end, I I feel like the last couple panels are a little bit ambiguous, but are we to assume that they switched consciousness back, that Bill's mind is back in his own body? Yes, I would assume that. Okay. It's not explicit. I guess it's just sort of implied. I mean, he he's looking pretty haggard when the when yeah. he comes out of that cave. He looks like he's been in that cave for years. Yeah, and I didn't know how much of that was supposed to be him kind of being disheveled from being, you know, hungry and thirsty for two days and how much of that was this gorilla mind now in a man's body going nuts right. in the dark. Yeah, gnashing the walls and everything and tearing him. Plus he was close to an explosion, so your critique there in the last few uh, panels is kind of a overall criticism of the art. There's a lot of quieter moments in the story where I think the art is supposed to carry it. And like that moment, there's two or three other moments where it's not really clear what's going on based on the art. And we don't have any narration boxes to really fill us in. Right. And yet that was really the only time where I kind of felt like confused. Like I feel like the art is a little bit more atmospheric. It's a little bit more moody And it captures the tone that I really, really like. For instance, I mean, I said that I've never read really a a Congo Bill story, even like the issues of action comics that I have read where he was part of the Forgotten Heroes. It wasn't about him. He didn't do anything really of note in those stories that I cared about. So when I got to this story, I I wasn't excited to read this story. I didn't care about Congo Bill or Congo Rilla. I just had no reference for him. When I read this story, though, this did what I want every Secret Origin story to do, which is I got to this one, and I was like, I really want to read more by this guy. And I want to read more sort of from this creative team, even even the art, which I liked enough. But I really like Tom Joyner's approach to the story. I think even Mark Wade describes it later on in the letters column that he he turned it more into like a pulp noir type of story rather than the embrace like it's a silly concept, I guess. I mean, that Safari Jungle guy rubs a ring, he becomes a golden gorilla. It's it's silly in, in sort of superhero comic way, but they make it almost a horror story, and I love it. I like this approach a lot. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's definitely got a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. type of feel, which is something that another character I really like, the Incredible Hulk, has uh, going for him. And he oh, would absolutely. Have, he would appear just about three years after this Congorilla change was introduced to Congo Bill. But I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head here that it takes the late 50s, early 60s DC Silver Age superhero gimmick of the rub in the ring and imposes that premise on more of the pulp adventure hero that really spawned, you know, the early Congo Bill stories in the early 40s there. And so you kind of get the fantastical element blended on that darker pulp element and it works really well in the story. Yeah, absolutely. They even make a mention of it that it's set in 1958, which would have been right around the time of the published story in action where he became Congorilla. Yep, that was a nice touch. Uh, I believe uh, Action Comics number 248 went on sale in November of 1958, and then the narration bubble says that this story takes place in June of 1958, so about right. whatever that is, five months off, but at least the same year. It was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. When I was doing more of the research, I found out that a big part of Congo Bill's story was he had this kind of kid sidekick, this this jungle boy named Janu. Mm-hmm. And there's no hint or mention of that character in this, and maybe they thought that was a little bit too silly. They they wanted to take this one a little bit more seriously. I'm fine with that. Again, having never read a story with Janu, I don't miss him. 
Yeah, I don't know at what point Janu went out. Uh, according to the uh, Who's Who entry, it was Bill kind of raised him as a guardian, and then he went off to America to get his official education. And uh, I don't know that he ever came back in the book, and I don't know where that was in the timeline. But going by the Who's Who, that was uh, before he ever took on the Congorilla mantle. Right. Yeah. So by this point in the life of the character, he wouldn't have been in the jungle with Bill. Uh, I did find out it looks like Janu was killed off in story in the last issue of the 1992 miniseries by Steve Englehart. So it's a cool, like, I like the elements that they added, the element of, you know, kind of tribal warfare and violence, the sense of betrayal. I like this origin of a character who is just trapped by the elements, who's trapped in a cave-in and dying and bleeding to death and needs to embrace this sort of supernatural element in order to save him. And, I mean, you point out the best part of the story, maybe the best part in the entire Secret Origins series, is a gorilla with a machine gun. Oh, man. That panel is awesome. <laughs> and the uh, it even made it into the Serpent in uh, Who's Who, obviously, would have came before this story. It would have been issue five of Who's Who, so what? that's probably July 85. Mm-hmm. So that must have happened a decent amount <laughs> In the uh, those stories that he was running around with a gun because Chuck Patton did the Who's Who entry and he has Congorilla with the machine gun in, in the Serpent, so it's kind of neat. But I actually like it a, a lot better here in the story by Frederick Butler and Keith Wilson. Their art yeah. actually looks better than Chuck Patton's Serpent, and that's definitely a compliment because Chuck Patton's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a savagery, there's a sort of unnaturalness to the gorilla it doesn't look exactly like a gorilla looks on model it is more of kind of a monstrous thing but it works and he's carrying it, it looks like a like a browning 50 caliber like the modus that roadblock from gi joe usually <laughs> carries so it's all good I, i've mentioned it before i love me some super apes this is a soft spot that i have in comics when you give me super intelligent gorillas and when you give them machine guns like monsieur mala or like in the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, I, I dig it. I mean, you've already done more than half of your share of getting me into the book. Yeah, well, that's definitely a, a pretty neat aesthetic. And uh, maybe, who knows, coming up with uh, Rebirth, maybe we'll get some more uh, classic uh, DC gorilla love in this uh, revitalized DC universe. I would be all for that. Uh, any other thoughts? I mean, there are some problems with the art where, like you said, a few things are a little bit ambiguous, and I wish they did a, a better job, but the storytelling is decent, is is serviceable enough, but the images with the gorilla, they're so fierce, they're so explosive. You're right, it does remind me of a Jekyll and Hyde or Werewolf or early Incredible Hulk story. It's a, it's a horror, it's a monster story. It's, that's exactly what it is. It's a pulp monster story set in the jungle. Yeah, and also the... Uh interesting i guess changes to the original origin where the nisolo character wasn't involved and so uh originally when bill and gotten trapped in the cave it was just due to an avalanche instead of a grenade being thrown in after him mm-hmm. and one of the i guess premises of the you know mind swap was that it lasted for an hour whereas in this story there's no sense of any sort of time limit you get the impression that uh Congorilla, when he's kind of tracking nisolo and the gorilla troops he just kind of hunkers down in the, the underbrush there and sits there for a while and watches them all day. There's even a comment like he's been trying to contain his rage all day since he switched, and then he just finally unleashes it. And so doesn't appear to be any sort of time constraint with the switch in this story, which is a change from the original. Now, can we talk about the best piece of art on page four? Yeah. So... <laughs> 
this was for those of you. I will definitely post this image on the website. Uh, Kyle and I had to confer about this panel, this page beforehand. Um, to set the scene, it's page four of the story. Uh, there are four kind of smaller panels up at the top, and then there's a large, like two quarter, two thirds to three quarters, like splash of Bill coming and uh, the Doctor Kruger coming out of the sort of medical hut where Koala has just died. They're in the village. There is a statue of a gorilla on what looks like kind of like a fountain. There's a fruit basket nearby. And this gorilla statue is in profile. And the way the art and shading on it looks... It's a big gorilla dong. It is. It's it's certainly, yeah. King Kong gorilla dong. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's that's what it looks like. You're gonna you're gonna see it. I don't want to be any more explicit about it than that without having to put tags on this episode. But I'm sure what it actually is is the gorilla's left leg, sort of in a, on a separate like elevation and shaded. But that is not what it looks like at a quick glance. And I'm pretty sure Fredrickson Wilson maybe wanted you to look that closely at it. Yeah. So. It's so. like one of those Disney things. Yet furry animals, you <laughs> think, oh, it's all it's all good, it's all PG, and then you find all these stuff hidden in the background. <laughs> so this story has a little bit of something for everybody. Yep. <laughs> Whatever your tastes may be. Whatever uh, silverback gorilla fantasies you might have, they're fulfilled here <laughs> in the secret origin of Congorilla. It's a short story. It's it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. But I, I like it a lot. If this creative team, or at least this tone and direction, had carried forth and done more jungle stories like this with Kangorilla, I would be excited to read those. Unfortunately, that didn't really happen. And I don't know enough about the other stories, the other appearances. Hardly any of this guy's stories have been reprinted or collected. And just like the Gil Kane Adventures of Superman collection has two of those stories from Action Comics. But I think that's it. Yeah, it's really unfortunate they haven't done a showcase. I mean, they could have cranked out two or three volumes of this. They had 20-some years of stories. I mean, think about that. I mean, obviously, it's the secret origin of Congorilla, but his genesis being Congo Bill. Congo Bill was introduced in 1940 and then had a continuous publishing presence until 1961. Mm -hmm. I mean... How many other DC characters outside of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman can you say that about? I think Green Arrow and Aquaman are it. Well, I I think it's mentioned in the uh, back matter, and I mentioned it during the publication history. There's only like five characters during the 40s and 50s who had live-action serials, and he was one of them. So that's quite a feat in itself. Uh, Have you read – I'm assuming you've read the Whatever Happened To story from DC Comics? What was that story like? How did that story differ, or what did it add to the character? It's been so long, I don't even remember. But, who knows with Dare Plyman getting out episodes. My plan is that when this episode drops, I'm actually going to do an episode of my show, Random Comic Showcase, that's going to cover the Forgotten Heroes issues of DC Comics Presents. I'll just give a kind of a brief overview of that, as well as the Action Comics ones, because I'm sure Russell Bragg will be getting to those for his... uh, DC Comics Presents show, which he is cranking out on fire yeah, every yeah. week. And uh, then I was also going to recap uh, the Whatever Happened to story and then cover the Who's Who entry. 
So head over to my feed and get my thoughts on it there, I guess. But uh, Nice synergy. Way to cross yeah. promote Well, I got to thinking after we did the JSA episode, as much as we talked about the uh, secret origin of the JSA from DC special, I really thought, God, why didn't I put on an episode like that to tie <laughs> to actually cover the original story? So not going to drop the ball on this one. I mean, I'm sure everybody's clamoring for more uh, Congo Bell and Congorilla now. So They better be or we didn't do our job very no. well. So. If I would say if you uh, read the story and it falls flat on you the first time, I would go back and read it a second time. There are a few storytelling elements in this one with I think are a little out of order. I mean, we get the whole, I read it verbatim, Koala's words for Congo Bill to rub the ring, you know, after he's been trapped in the cave for two days. That is alluded to off panel two times before we actually ever see that. And so if you're coming into Congo Bill and Congorilla and you don't really know a whole lot about them and then you just, what ring are you talking about? Mm-hmm. What ape legend or myth are you talking about? Because we never see that on panel, yet we get snippets of two conversations about that conversation. So that that was a little odd, but you know, once you're aware of it by learning about it after the fact, your first read through, I think it makes the, the first four or five pages of the story flow a little bit better the second time through. I agree with that. Also, I mean, we don't need it. It's not central to this idea, but I would have liked a little bit more of an exploration of, okay, Bill's psyche, he has all the powers of this gorilla body, but what about his human body with a a gorilla's mind? I mean, that puts his body in danger. Yeah. Um, And certainly, like I said, later on in in later stories, they, they change it so that he basically is permanently in the gorilla. Any other stories that you would recommend i mean uh, you're gonna you're gonna hit upon those dc comics presents ones with your show but yeah unfortunately just because none of it's ever been reprinted you're kind of just uh probably limited to what you can find in back issues and that pretty much limits those you know three dc comics presents issues to uh action comics issues and then you know the late 80s early 90s uh, minis you mentioned and then that swamp thing annual three that's probably the only thing uh, you might be able to come across in cheap bins or pick up on eBay at a reasonable price. I suppose the more recent stuff, like Justice League Cry for Justice, although I can't in good conscience recommend that. I haven't read it. I heard it was atrocious. Yeah, it wasn't great, and neither was James Robinson's pre-Flashpoint run on Justice League either. So I think uh, I read two issues, and I hated them. So, I, yeah, I can't. But... Like you said, maybe we'll get Congo Bill Rebirth in a couple yeah. months. be nice to throw out a showcase, but I'd be all over that. Which yeah. is really, uh, I have a fondness for kind of action or adventure comics. Uh, and DC actually put out some really great adventure comic or action type hero comics throughout the 50s and early 60s. The, the early issues of Brave and the Bold, those are fantastic with Viking Prince and Robin Hood and Golden Knight. And unfortunately, they've never reprinted that. And that's one of the genres that are severely lacking in their kind of showcase reprints. It would be nice if they'd collect some of those and crank them out. Did DC ever have the rights to Tarzan or was that just Marvel? No, DC did. They continued the numbering from Gold Key. Yeah, Joe Kubert did the entire run on that. I, I have that entire run issue format. It's awesome. So DC took over that with 206. They continued the numbering. I want to say it was up to like 254, 260. And then they also had the Korak Son of Tarzan uh-huh. series as well. But I just, I'm a huge Joe Kubert fan, so I absolutely love his Tarzan. And they've actually even put out uh, at least one, IDW's done one artist edition. It was Joe Kubert Tarzan. Nice. And so I think they had the 
it was like 1972 to 1976, 77, and then it reverted over to Marvel. Well, for listeners, if you want more jungle adventures like that, there's a new Tarzan movie coming out this year with, I think, Alexander Skarsgård is the lead playing Tarzan, who I only care about because I fan-casted him to play Aquaman years ago. But I also think Margot Robbie, who's playing Harley Quinn, is also in that movie. And then just a couple of months ago, we had uh, Disney's The Jungle Book, which I saw, and that was pretty good. I mean, I, I know the story. They didn't do anything that surprised me. The visual effects in the movie were great. The voiceover work was awesome. But yeah, a couple of good jungle movies if you're interested in those this year. Well, Kyle, unless you have anything else, uh, I want to thank you very much for being my guest on the show yet again. Where else can people find you on the podcastosphere? I have a bunch of shows on the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun feed. Uh, you can find those on iTunes. And then I also have a show called the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast. It covers my two favorite DC characters, Superman and the original Captain Marvel. And I have two episodes recorded that I just need to get off my book ass and edit and get those released all right that sounds great thank you once again for being on the show this was a lot of fun yeah thanks for having me i guess the podcast is getting into the public's ear wish i could do more to promote dc comics Presents show maybe it's time to do another promo i'll do it right now interruptions always interruptions hello Yes, this is Russell Bragg. Yes, I host a DC Comics Present show. How can I help you? Let, let me get this straight. You want to write a newspaper article on me and my show? Well, how can I help you? Well, let's see. The DC Comics Present show is a podcast covering the DC Comics Presents comic book starring Superman. In it, Superman teams up with any number of characters in the DC Comics universe. I also have a few segments I've added. I do listener feedback. I have a segment called Russell's Comic Brag, where I brag about a comic that I recently picked up. I do a spotlight on Superman's guest. Every once in a while, I have to do a hostess ad. And to round out the show, I go to the comic spinner rack to see what other comics were on sale. Thanks for reminding me. I guess that would be important on how people can find the show. People can go to the show's main website at www.bragaboutcomics.com. They can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.
and we're back once more for another Orangutan Origin. This time, we're looking at the story of Detective Chimp. My guest is making his long-awaited return since he thrilled you with the dashing tale of The Whip. Please welcome Paul Scavito back to the show. How are you, buddy? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on again. Well, thank you for pinching in at the last minute. I knew I could count on you. Uh, And for those of you listening, Paul is not an expert on this character, but I knew that he was the right guest, you know, after my first choice had to cancel. And all I had to say was two words, Detective Chimp. And you said... (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. Uh, If you don't know the history of this character... Bobo, the detective chimp, was created by writer John Broom and artist Carmine Infantino. He debuted in the fourth issue of Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog, published back in 1952. A couple of months later, he returned in issue 6, and he continued to appear in Rex the Wonder Dog until issue 46, published in 1959. After that, it was more than 20 years before Detective Chimp showed up again, this time appearing in the Whatever Happened to Rex the Wonder Dog feature of DC Comics Presents number 35. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Detective Chimp had a few sporadic appearances, but in 1999, he and several of the DC Universe's magic users formed the Shadow Pact in the Day of Judgment miniseries. Bobo and the rest of the group then returned in Day of Vengeance during the lead-up to Infinite Crisis, That miniseries then spun into Shadow Pact ongoing series that lasted 25 issues. Most recently, Detective Chimp made an appearance in the New 52 Justice League United comic. He's also appeared in Scooby-Doo Team-Up and the Injustice Gods Among Us tie-in. Outside of comics, he appeared in the animated series Batman the Brave and the Bold, episode Golden Age of Justice, and he's a playable character in Lego Batman 3. That's about all I know. So what is your experience with Detective Chimp? Well, I apparently um, spent some time with him, or maybe I should use the words allegedly, um, I spent some time with this chimp during my uh, tear through 52. But I have no memory of this character in that story whatsoever. So he left an impression, or rather a chimp-sized whole word impression should have been. So... That's my experience with Detective Chip. And honestly, I hadn't even really heard of the character until you sent me that email. Um, yeah, he was helping Ralph when Ralph was running around with the helmet of fate. That's what I figured, um, especially when you said magic. Mm-hmm. So, And that's kind of the weirder part of his more recent history because, as we'll see when we get to this origin story, they kind of made up the fact that he was a magic user because in one of his stories he finds the Fountain of Youth. And that's what allows him to magically somehow understand all animal languages and speak English. Because prior to that, he couldn't speak. He was just more intelligent. It was weird. It was more of the way that I compare it is, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a clear demarcation between DC Comics and their Vertigo imprint. Mm -hmm. And characters who were appearing in the Vertigo books did not appear in DC books, like the characters from Neil Gaiman's Sandman and in the Hellblazer, which was the John Constantine character. So when they needed a Constantine type, I have no idea why, but somebody pointed to Detective Chimp and said, he can do it. So in these Shadow Pack books, he was kind of a drunken asshole chimpanzee that brought <laughs> these other more powerful magic users together. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would have done with him. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> it seems logical. It's. I mean, if you're connecting dots and there's a chimp and there's a need for a John Constantine. <laughs> I mean, I, it writes itself. Right? It's like, it's, um, okay, so the origin of Detective Chimp is scripted by Rusty Wells based on a plot by Andrew Helfer with art by Mark Badger. Two alien visitors arrive in Earth's atmosphere aboard their spaceship. Wynad declares his intentions to enlarge and enhance the brain of one of Earth's dominant life forms so it can better understand the mysteries of the cosmos. Wynad's partner, Kram, is quick to point out that Wynad is a moron who has so far failed to alter native species on the last eight planets they've visited. But that's all going to change on Earth when they fly down to the jungles of Africa and enter the mouth of a chimpanzee. The spaceship, which turns out to be roughly the size of a popcorn seed, crashes in the chimp's stomach. Wynad and Kram continue to bicker as they stumble clumsily into the chimp's bloodstream. Then, after 40 minutes, they finally arrive at the animal's brain, where Wynad uses his alien technology to alter the chimp's mind. Outside of the chimp's brain and body, a man named Gus has led an African expedition to study the local natives in order to become chair of the anthropology department at whatever university he's from. Gus recounts to his assistant, Randolph, all of the troubles of his expedition has faced so far, including an alarming number of missing villagers. A sudden commotion in the campsite draws Gus's attention to a chimpanzee that has started carving images of what looks like a superhero on a wooden crate. Gus and Randolph try to capture the chimp, but he eludes them quite easily, and while the chimp cannot speak our language, he has no trouble understanding it and even thinks in English. During the chase, the chimp snatches a copy of a murder mystery novel and escapes from the human camp. He spends the night reading the book and happens to observe one of the men from the camp burying a dead body. The next day, Gus tells Randolph to pack up the camp because all of the villagers have gone missing. His expedition is a failure and he'll never be head of the anthro department. At that moment, the chimp returns with the mystery novel. He shows Gus a passage from the book where an assistant pulls a gun and declares that he wants his boss's job. That's enough to spook Randolph, who pulls a gun on Gus and declares that he does indeed want his boss's job as head of the anthro department, which is why he killed all of the villagers. Or whatever. The chimp disarms and captures Randolph, and an ecstatic Gus announces that he'll bring the primate to America, where he can capitalize on the super smart chimps' powers. And with their job done, Wynad and Karam pilot their tiny spacecraft out of the chimp's ear and take it up, up, and away from Earth. Once they've left the planet, Karam congratulates Wynad on reshaping Earth's destiny as the aliens remove their helmets, revealing faces that look a lot like monkeys. And that is the origin of Detective Chimp. So, what are your thoughts? Well... (laughs) um, So, I mean, a few things. Um, One, I was struck by how I get Wynad. Is that the correct pronunciation? I I went with that because otherwise it's Yanad and it's... So we'll go with Wynad. Um, um, Reminded me remarkably of McCoy from Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a surfer on the, the the waves of thought, yeah. not a scientist or whatever, a mechanist <laughs> or whatever it is he says. Like that's he's. I think he says it like three times. Mm-hmm. Um, that these petty complaints that K. Ram has against his work. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, in terms of the story itself, 
okay. Um, (laughs) um, I guess we're just really lucky that that particular mystery novel happened to be there with that very scene in it. So to call that fortuitous, I don't know, stretches, I think, even the limits of what good fortune would usually even offer up. So you're questioning the credibility of a story about <laughs> Detective Chimp. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. It's, um, As for that murder mystery book, yep. the one thing that I did like about it, a very, very subtle Easter egg, yep. um, is that it's called Murder in the Museum, and the author on the book's cover is K. Day. She is a fictional character in the DC universe. Nice. She is an author and part of something called the Mystery Analysts of Gotham City. Oh, wow. Maybe appeared in five comics or something, like in the Silver Age. So I I don't know whose (laughs) idea it was to reach back and grab that one, but I thought that was kind of funny just as an Easter egg. That's kind of nicely done. Um, I guess if I was to have one kind of overarching criticism of this origin story is that other than um, the fact that Bobo figures out um, this murder, we don't really get to meet him. Not really. I mean, he's just kind of set in motion here and he does something, but we don't really know anything about him, what he wants, who he is. Who's the protagonist of this story? Yeah, I <laughs> K. Uh, why? I think it's Wynad and Kram, but yeah. they're in the first two or three page. It's a nine-page story. They're in the first three, and then they show up at the very end. I think it's their story. Do they ever come back? No. And this story, none of the characters in this book do. Like this does not connect to Detective Chimp's first appearance. He was owned by an animal wrangler, this guy named Fred Thorpe, who dies. He's killed, I think, in his first appearance. And then Bobo partners with this small-town, like, Florida sheriff to help solve the crime. And after that, the detective chimp is, like, the sidekick of this, you know, local sheriff. So it had nothing to do with any of these characters. Gus, Randolph, these aliens who look like monkeys. None of this is in... Detective Chimp's past stories, and none of it ever comes back in the future. Like you could, it's so a, tied in pretty tightly to um, <laughs> this character. Yes. So yeah, I mean that's I don't have a whole lot more to say about his origin. It's fun though. I mean, it's it is, it's a fun little story. It's funny. Yeah. Um, and it's also funny that someone, I mean, just in general, um, would be willing to kill to become the head of an anthropology department. I mean, I guess that's probably a thing, and I'm sure anthropologists really like their jobs, and I'm sure in their turbulent and torrid world in which they live, the stakes can get pretty high. It's um, it's kill-or-be-killed business in anthropology. I, I, I've often heard about that in the upper reaches of anthropology academia. Um, <laughs> it's, just the blood, let the blood run, as they say. <laughs> Forget fighting for the Iron Throne. You know, you really want to see cutthroating and betrayal. Just go to a college anthropology department. Uh, so, um, what did you think of the art in the story? I thought it was actually kind of cool. I liked the art for the two aliens. I liked mm-hmm. their two. And I was trying to figure out what it was that it reminded me of. And I was like, I don't like sort of like a, it's got kind of like a Robotech kind of feel. I don't know, but their outfits I thought were kind of cool. Yeah, the artist Mark Badger. He's done a lot of he he kind of bounced around. He was doing a lot of stuff for like Doctor Strange books at Marvel, and he did some other things for DC. I think I'm, well, I'm sure his biggest creation, probably what most people would know him for, 
uh, for Dark Horse, he created the mask. Do you remember that? The green yeah. mask, the Jim Carrey movie was based yep. on that? He yep. created that that property. Okay, I can uh, see that. Yeah, that, so the, the style and everything was very expressive, kind of crazy, cartoonish style. And you're right, I think it works well for... Wynad and Kiran, these two alien visitors. I liked them. I I loved their bickering back and forth. I wanted to see more from them. Like sure. That, that would be a story, a group that I would like to see. But once we get into the story, it's like, uh, who are these professors that I don't care about? And but you should, because they're going to <laughs> risk it all. For... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, the advancement of knowledge. Um, maybe not even good knowledge, but... Um, yeah... So, anyway. Yeah, I mean, the reason that I wanted you on this was I, we loved your take when we talked about the whip. <laughs> <laughs> so, what would your take be? If you, you know, when you run DC Comics, what will you do with Detective Chimp? The same thing as I did with the whip. Okay. Exactly the same. <laughs> Make him like riding on a horse and oh, yeah, seducing yeah, yeah. the women. <laughs> If you've read the whip, this would be the same thing, just with a monkey. Um, no, the, um, so I've got a couple different things that I would do with him. My first thought was that I would probably set up, and he is a detective, right? And so I would set him up in the detective agency. I would have him kind of doing his thing. I don't know that I would make him terribly bitter um, or swearing. I probably wouldn't make him all that successful. But regardless, my thought of how I would actually use him in the story is I would send him home at the end of a long day of dealing with mistresses and mistresses of mistresses and not making enough money and hating his life a little. And he sees like, I don't know, a six-year-old or seven-year-old powered kid doing something. And he's kind of curious. And he sort of follows this kid around a corner and he sees like five or six more. And basically what he has um, run into is the kid brothers and kid sisters of the Teen Titans <laughs> who have decided that they want to form their own team. But they're six and so the worst at everything and just basically getting into trouble. And he's going to have a moment where he's like, you know, I don't need this in my life. I can just turn around and I can go be a detective chimp. You know, that's a good gig. And and then the kids are going to rush headlong into some sort of thing. He's like, oh, my God, no. And he has to intervene. And he ends up being kind of a Professor X to these what I would probably call like the junior Titans or something. And so it would be like a story for kids where this monkey has kind of reluctantly taken the helm of these six powered youths. Um, would it be like an all ages like reader like type of, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And like things like they would find interesting, like where did the dog that used to live in this neighborhood go? Um, <laughs> And, you know, what is this food made of and why did its name change? And it's like, okay, we can find this out. It's not – and they're gone. Like, no, don't. <laughs> um, so that's my first thought is that I would put him in charge of that team and just have him ill-equipped to deal with these young kids with powers. Um, option two is do you remember the movie Project X with Matthew Broderick? Um, oh, God, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, where there were, like, chimps that were being used to test pilot planes, uh-huh. and they were, like, exposed to radiation and, like, all this stuff. And then he took the day off and went to Chicago. And... Yeah. No, that was the other Matthew Brown. That was the other, that was the other okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in that movie, 
So I would probably tie his origin not to what we saw here, but to something like that, where he was like this test pilot chimp. And I'd probably use some pseudoscience and talk about how he had been given some brain amplification or whatnot. Anyway, um, so he's doing sort of test pilot stuff. They send him up in an actual plane and he's flying around at supersonic speeds and they're testing some new engine and he's flying through a lightning storm and Gaza zap, Gaza zing. He is transported back in time to the 1960s. Okay. So he lands in the 1960s, which he hates um, <laughs> pretty much everything about. And he had been able to speak before this, but he was really smart, you know, in his program. And he had a lot of, you know, sort of understanding of modern technology and science. And he like really easily figures something out. I don't know what it would be. Like somebody's missing something and he's like, well, it's clearly this, this, and this. And they're like, wow, you're like super smart. And he's like, it's really not a big deal. And they're like, are you a detective? Um, he's like, I'm not really. You're totally a detective. And he becomes this kind of glam celebrity in 60s pop culture where celebrities come to him to have their, like, celebrity mysteries solved. Um, <laughs> and so he has this kind of high-flying life in the 1960s, which he would continuously detest. And... I was also thinking about integrating like a character like Fate, who has put him here on purpose um, <laughs> as a sort of punishment for such like for what a jerk he is, um, and the way he's gonna repay his debt to karmic existence is by helping these. Oh, and oh, oh, yes, that's another thought, which was that. So he comes back, right? Um, and we have this kind of glam pop lifestyle. But one of the big events that he would face is that in this version of the past, Nixon ends up president defeating Kennedy. Okay. And, but he already knows what's going to, like, what happens in the future. And he's like, do you think, it's like nobody would try to kill. And, like, he does a little bit of digging, and it turns out there is a plot to kill Nixon. Um, and so he has to, like, save the president, even though he really, really, really doesn't want to. Um, and, and so he's sent on, like, ends up going on this 1960s, very glam, though, kind of spy detective adventure to save President Nixon. Wow. And that's what I would do with Detective Chimp. Did not see that coming when I asked the question. <laughs> Good job. Okay. Thank you. Um, Any final thoughts on Detective Chimp? No, I, I think can't imagine not. you topping what you just said. So. <laughs> um, you know, I think he's an interesting character. I think he's. I think tying him to magic is kind of a waste. And I also think turning him into a John Constantine like character. I would love to have been at that meeting where that was floated. What if he was Constantine? Yeah, I'm assuming after the spit take, he must have had something. The guy who proposed that at the table must have had something on somebody in that room who then had to like, yeah, we should do it. I think they just pitched the initial image, which is a bunch of magic users at a bar talking about, you know, the specter going crazy and killing everybody. And the one guy who's like, shut up, I have a plan, is a chimpanzee sitting alone at the booth. 
that was like the first image, and I think they like they pitched that, and they're like, okay, let's go with yeah, it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it works. Was it the eighties? Uh, no, that was like nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. Uh, so you can't even blame it on the coke. Um, oh, you still cut. I mean, but <laughs> I guess ecstasy, <laughs> oxycontin. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much, Paul, for Absolutely. being part of this episode. Where can people find you online, or what other projects would you like to promote? Um, thank you, Ryan. I am the lead writer of a comic book for kids called Armadillo Justice um, that's published at um, Rising Sun Comics. And I also work with this very Ryan Daly on a webcomic called Red and Green, which can also be found at Rising Sun Comics um, weekly and extra weekly. <laughs> Um, that's all I got. Yeah. All right. um. <laughs> One more time. Thank you very much for being part of the show. This was great to have you again. And thank you very much for having me on Ryan. Okay. Okay. So let's go back to the top and I'll press record this time. Ryan <laughs> daily. <laughs> I never get to use that joke on my other guests. <laughs> <laughs> Before getting to your listener feedback, I wanted to mention that this episode of Secret Origins is dedicated to the memory of Harambe, the silverback gorilla that was shot and killed at the Cincinnati Zoo in May. Apes do not want war, but will fight if we must. It's a hallmark of good science fiction that stories as ridiculous as Gorilla City can affect you on multiple levels. I didn't articulate this when recording with Bass, but something about the end of the story resonates more today. The leader of Gorilla City sees the threats from outside their borders and decides to build a wall to protect them. That's his answer. Build a wall. But ultimately, the real danger lies within. One other thing, I want to give a shout-out to former guest of the show Al Girding, also known as Van Z on social media. Al hooked me up with a copy of Superheroes vs. Super Apes from DC Special number 16. I finally got around to reading that, and thank you very much, Al. Over on Twitter, Secret Origins episode 39, the Man Batten Animal Man episode, received new favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Austin Cookendall, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, David Gutierrez, Doc Flux, Dylan A. Lang, Film and Water Podcast, who gave three screes for Manbat, The Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, The Hammer Strikes, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bal, Wanga Sabaha, Keith G. Baker, Mario at Luther Lang, Matthew Thomas Cody, Pod Dylan, Riley Quinn, Sanctioned Buffoon, The Silver and Gold Podcast, which is at SNG Pod 4779, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, and Willie Yarbrough. Also got a Twitter comment from Lucien Dassar, who said the Manbat may have been created by DC just to head off Marvel from using and trademarking the name. Lucien pointed to an article in Back Issue Magazine, issue 73, where Neil Adams pitched the Manbat story to Julie Schwartz, who groaned at the idea but allowed them to do the stories so they could have the name. Well, thank you very much for that heads up, Lucien. On to Facebook, Igor Glushkin said, This was such an exciting podcast to listen to. Thank you, Shag and Ryan. Animal Man is my favorite DC character. 
Well, you are perfectly welcome, Igor, and thank you very much for the comment. It's great to hear. Although, I'm not sure why you thanked Shag first. He didn't do anything. Uh, we also got a comment from Logan Drydale. I believe this is his first comment about the show, so welcome, Logan. Uh, he said he was introduced to Manbat through the Power Records story. A number of listeners mentioned that Power Records, and if you haven't heard it, go way back into the Fire and Water archives. It actually predates the Power Records podcast getting its own show. But Rob Kelly and Chris Franklin covered the Power Records story, Robin Meets the Manbat, on episode 62 of the Fire and Water podcast. You gotta check that out. And other Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Bias, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Bradley Null, Christopher Ouellette, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, Dale Dale, Feathers and Foes, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Harlan Freilicker, Igor Glushkin, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, John Mouser, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Logan Drydale, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Mike Peacock, Monty Selby Jr., Nathaniel Hubbard, Nicholas Prom, Paul Scavito, Rob Kelly, Russell Bragg, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Silver and Gold Podcast, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdez A. Kunzens, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. If you promoted the podcast on social media and I forgot to read your name, I apologize for that oversight. Please just let me know and I will correct that mistake next time. Naturally, your feedback is welcome on all social media like Facebook and Twitter, but you can also leave comments on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. I don't generally read the entire comments on this section, but I do try to represent every listener who wrote something. Such as, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said issue 39 was his absolute favorite issue of Secret Origins. Well, that's too bad, because that means it's all downhill from here. Uh, Ange says, both stories are fantastic, both add something to the current origin, both have fantastic art, it's incredible. This is one of those secret origin issues that when I see it in a dollar bin, I buy it to give to someone. Ainge said the Manbat story was sort of depressing, but it works for the character, and Professor Allen would come back in the comments section and agree with that. Then Ainge talked about Animal Man. As you guys said, the first four issues are sort of standard superhero story without the Morrison trappings. Coyote Gospel is a turning point. That is such a great issue. For me, the most poignant part of that book is that Buddy can't read the gospel. So sad. The entire 26 issues is a mind game, and this secret origin did sort of start the meta portion of the arc. We see that later these aliens defeat an immortal villain by undrawing him, going from inked to pencils to thumbnail to blank paper. Unreal. And Sean Dillon responded to Ange's comment, I think the most interesting part of the Coyote Gospel issue is that we can't read it either. We're just told by Grant slash the narrator what the scribbles say. Rob Kelly, whose new purpose in life is competing with Darren and Ruth Sutherland for total number of Twitter feeds, Rob said, I always considered Manbat to be a member of the Batman family in good standing. That had to be because my first exposure to the character was in the late 70s, when he occasionally got his own strip and was, often as not, included in any bonus Batman family pinup page DC would throw in when they were short a page. And of course, the awesome power record didn't hurt. Rob added, as is usual for me, it seems, I will defend the cover. Yes, it does look like Manbat is putting the whammy on Animal Man, 
Oh, excuse me. But it's so pretty that I don't mind, and I love the theme issue idea anyway. David Ace Gutierrez, formerly of the Ultraverse podcast, said, One sad note, I'm not sure how I feel about Professor Allen spending more than a quarter on a comic. It's like seeing the wires when Superman flies. I've lost my faith. But then David praised Kevin Nolan's art and said, The most beautiful comic in the world is Doctor Strange Fate. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to compete with Howard Chaikin's Black Kiss. Chris Franklin from the aforementioned Power Records podcast left a lengthy comment about Man Bat and Animal Man. I mean, not Frank size, but about Jeff Nettleton size. I'm only reading a few bits as usual, but Chris said, If I didn't get to cover Man Bat, at least you got Professor Allen to do it. Cue Ryan saying, You got Superman and Batman, Chris, blah blah blah. No, no, Chris, keep going. Who else did you get to cover? Oh, the Justice League of America. And aren't you on the next episode talking about that little group? What are they called? Oh, the Teen Titans. But by all means, Chris, do whine about not getting to cover Man Bat. But Chris, who I love, and I just have to tease about this, Chris did concede that Professor Allen's Man Bat fandom may exceed his own. And he goes on to say, I think more could have been made of Kirk's time in the cave and the bat creatures he was obsessed with. Maybe really emphasize that Kirk was a brilliant professor, admired by most, but that he harbored this crackpot theory he wouldn't let go of. Attempting to prove such a creature could exist may have driven him to the extremes he went to, experimenting on himself versus just wanting to help Batman. Then he mentioned, Kevin Nolan is no Neil Adams, but I really liked his moody take on the story. He actually contributed Man-Bat designs to Batman the Animated Series, and elements of them were used in the final design, so he did contribute to On Leather Wings. Chris also said that the Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number 5 established that Kirk Langstrom was suffering from degenerative hearing loss and experimented with bat glands to see if their sonar could help him find a cure. Well, that does solve the problem of Kirk not having a motivation for his obsessive experiments with bats, but it also makes him even more of a lizard ripoff. Kind of hard to say which is better, which is worse. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey indicated his desire to make the Fire and Water Network's rogues gallery because he disagreed with both Chris and Shag. The latter because Jimmy said he likes Chaz Trogs are on Animal Man. He said, The cartoon style was perfect to illustrate the deep stories Morrison was telling. When you have very stylized art combined with his brand of storytelling, it sometimes is unclear as to what Morrison is trying to put across. As for the man-bat, Jimmy said, The best stories have already been told, and when they go back, it's usually some variation of the first three stories. Once you've read them, you've pretty much read them all. The only way I can see you doing an ongoing series is if you do it along the lines of the Eclipso series from the 1990s that spun out of the Eclipso annual crossover. Assemble a team led by Francine to try to capture Manbat. You concentrate on the team with Manbat as the boogeyman that binds them all together. Hmm, kind of similar to Tomb of Dracula, except in that case the Count was inherently evil. But Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast had another idea for making Man-Bat viable in the longer term, either as a villain or anti-hero. But it requires, Frank says, a canonically supported shift in motivations. You have to explain why an accomplished scientist in a happy marriage would subject himself to radical, needless, dangerous experimentation. And the answer is, he wanted out. 
His stated motive was that he was inspired by Batman and sought to help improve his effectiveness through mad science. The truth is, Kirk Langstrom was a lucky man who still wasn't satisfied and either wanted to be Batman or just needed an excuse to detonate his status quo despite living an enviable life. None of this has to change Francine from being a loving wife and a scientist in her own right unwilling to let Kirk go and making excuses for him. It's Kirk who has to be recognized as an addict and or otherwise self-sabotaging because he's escaping from his past life through Man-Bat. Frank also touched upon the use of Man-Bat in other media besides comics, saying, I remember when Batman and Robin bombed. One of the excuses was that the SFX game had ramped up so much that nobody was impressed by Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy on the movie screens. Time out for a second. I do not remember hearing that among the many, many, many criticisms of the movie, but I'll take your word for it in this case. Uh, Frank continues, the franchise rightly corrected in a different way by digging deeper into mature storytelling instead of visual effects wizardry. Still, it made sense for Batman the Animated Series to launch with one of the Cape Crusader's most otherworldly, cartoonetic foes, and it wouldn't surprise me if the next Batman revival doesn't dig into the CGI toy box to differentiate itself from Nolan's more grounded approach. Also, you can do a one-and-done with Man-Bat in a way that you can't do with a Joker or a Two-Face that have volumes of story direction and subtext to plumb. Man-Bat is a one-note gimmick, so strum that single chord and go on to the next rogue. Now, I don't think Frank has seen Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice yet, but I would be shocked if the next Batman film doesn't employ a villain every bit as grounded and realistic as we got from Chris Nolan. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I first came across Man Bat in podcast favorite Batman from the 30s to the 70s and was rather taken with him. He's so creepy looking and, well, has fleas, sending him right up the menace scale. I agree that there's not much you could do with him as a series character. Heck, at this point, Kirk's been Man Bat, Francine's been a woman bat, the Barons have been brat bats. What's next? Cat bat? Now I want to commission someone to draw Cat Bat for me. Martin adds, As for this story, it was a nice recap with wonderful Nolan art. I love Roy Thomas-style connections, so bring on the dopey blind bat. Really? Okay. And he also mentions that, perhaps coincidentally, before drawing the Coyote Gospel issue, Chaz Trog drew the Coyote comic for Marvel's Epic line. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, who is usually the first to leave a comment on the website, said, thwarted from being the first commentator by technical impediments downloading the episode. <sighs> it's a poor workman who blames his tools, Paul. He goes on, I'm here to drop some knowledge about superheroes and leather jackets. Animal Man was not the first superhero to don the skins in the 1980s. A little-known Australian comic writer, Grant Morrison, put his superhero creation, Zenith, for the British anthology 2000 AD into a leather jacket in August 1987, a full ten months earlier. The Animal Man writer, while not being first to the punch, shouldn't complain, because I'm sure he influenced the Doom Patrol writer who put Robot Man Cliff Steele into a leather jacket nearly 18 months later. You know, something tells me those three writers were all the same guy. Paul says, One of the earliest chats I had with my future wife was about the Animal Man comic and how mind-blowing it was. I remember we met just after issue 19 came out with the famous I Can See You splash page. 
Very, very cool, Paul. Uh, lastly, he adds, I think DC should reimagine the Forgotten Heroes at least once every decade. I'm a big fan of chucking random characters together and calling them a team. I love that idea. So here, Crime Buster, Gunfire, the female Dr. Light, Aztec, Jakim Thunder, Artemis, and the Canterbury Cricket from Flashpoint. There's your new Forgotten Heroes. Make that happen. Finally, Jeff Nettleton said, Animal Man is one I have mostly just sampled. I read the first trade, have the whole thing digitally, but I've never been compelled to read the whole thing. Morrison is very hit or miss for me. A large chunk of his work in this era strikes me as Alan Moore light. The rest struck me as Michael Moorcock light. Some of it grabs me, large chunks do not. Animal Man is more in the doesn't-grab-me camp. There's nothing wrong with it, and it tends to be a bit more unique than large swaths of his other work. I can't really explain it. I just don't respond to it. Invisibles was one I really wanted to like, as it was right up my alley, yet I didn't stick around with it for more than about six months. On the other hand, I loved Steed and Mrs. Peel, All-Star Superman, the first half of Zenith, before it started crossing dimensions, and bits of Batman. This story... Pretty much like the Animal Man trade. Good writing, I just don't connect with the story. That is going to be all for episode 40 of the Secret Origins podcast, folks. We've only got 10 more regular issues to cover, but there's also a couple of irregular issues as well, including Secret Origins Annual number 3. That episode will drop next week, and it features me and three awesome guests talking about the history of the Teen Titans. You don't want to miss that episode. Wait, why would I even have to say that? Why would you ever miss any episode? Whatever. Until next time, I want to thank my guests, Bass, Kyle, and Paul for appearing on this episode. Thanks to everyone who left a comment and or helps to promote the show on social media. And thank you for listening. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you.